you guys can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been flying through Mark lately at a clip, like just about a chapter a week, it seems like. And today, we get to slow down a little bit and, and let the things that we've been hearing so far kind of percolate and, and, and filter the way that we view this last section in what's the first half of Mark's gospel. Last week, we considered the first stories in a group that mark the hinge for Mark's story. Mark has been telling one story from the beginning, a story about Jesus, about what Jesus came to do, and about what Jesus demands from us. That's his story. The story turns in the passage that we're looking at today. Last week, we looked at the, at the seeds of this turning, a group of stories that, that contrasted Jesus' amazing power, seen especially when he fed 4,000 people with just a few pieces of bread. Contrasting that power... And the clear display of it with the disciples' inability to see him. They're so worried about what they're going to eat when they forget to bring bread on their, on their boat journey. We see ourselves in that. So many times Jesus has been there for us, has delivered, has, has, has rescued us from the things that we feared most. And yet, when faced with new fears, we constantly revert back to the same old patterns, no matter how many times he delivers us. We've seen the disciples, in other words, in, our, in ourselves. But Jesus followed up this story of the disciples' unbelief with a, a really powerful encounter with a, a blind man. Mark tells us this story, and none of the other Gospels do. It's a strange little story. It starts out simple enough. Man comes to Jesus for something he can't do for himself. He's got this physical problem. He needs to be able to see, and he can't. He comes up and falls down before Jesus, just like the leper had before him, just like so many demon-possessed people have before him in, in the stories that Mark's been telling. His friends are there with him, pleading, just like the friends of the man who, who was paralyzed and, and brought to Jesus through the roof. All of that is familiar. But then Jesus addresses him, in, in a very distinctive way. He calls the man away from the crowd, sort of off to the side, and instead of just speaking and healing him instantly, like we've seen him do before, or, or even just touching him and healing him instantly, like, like we've seen him do plenty of times before, Jesus spits on him. He, he rubs it on his eyes. And instead of being healed immediately, the man is healed only in part. Jesus asks him, can you see? And he says, well, yeah, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. He's still really blurry. Then Jesus touches him again, and he's healed fully. Why? Some people wonder why even Mark would include a story like this if it makes Jesus look less powerful. You could interpret it as Jesus not able to heal him the first time. It didn't take the first time around, so he, he has to try it again, right? I don't think that's why Mark put it there at all. He doesn't tell us, but Mark always makes his points through the stories that he tells and in what order he tells these stories. And this story of sight given by Jesus, but only in part first, followed by full sight, occurs right between the disciples' unbelief and Peter's dramatic confession of Jesus as the Christ. This strange little story is an analogy of what must happen for a person to truly believe in Jesus. Jesus must give you sight if you're to believe in him. But the analogy doesn't stop there. It's also an analogy for the way that the disciples come to understand Jesus' identity. It only happens in stages. Just like the blind man sees in part at first and then sees fully, 
So we see Peter seeing in part when he confesses the Christ, but as we'll see today, still not understanding what Jesus is here to do. His understanding of who Jesus is, is correct so far as it goes. His understanding of what Jesus came to do is still woefully incorrect. He sees the disciples with him, but it's like he sees men looking like trees walking around. What he still needs and what the rest of this story is going to be about is him coming to see Jesus for who he really is. From here on, we get Mark shifting from the question, who is Jesus, to the question, what Jesus came to do. Now, we've already seen some hints about what this looks like. We've seen Jesus act with amazing power. We've seen Jesus act with compassion towards those that society had had put on the margins. We've seen him live a life that is pleasing to God and be declared as pleasing to God from heaven itself at his baptism. We've seen him preaching a message of the kingdom. And we've seen him discuss his remarkable purpose of forgiving sins. The sick, he says, are the ones who need a doctor. And he's come to heal the sick. We've seen that much. What we see beginning today is that all of those are merely themes that find their fulfillment in what Jesus ultimately came to do. Jesus came to die. And three days later, to rise again. What we see today, from here on, is a story that marches to Jerusalem. Beginning today, he and his disciples, as Mark tells the story, are headed for his death. And from here on, we track with the disciples as they show how little they were prepared to hear this message. They saw the Christ, but not clearly. What they had to learn, and what Jesus begins teaching them here, is that there is no Christ without a cross. And there is no Christian discipleship without suffering. There is no Christ without a cross. That's point one. And there is no Christian discipleship apart from suffering. Let's read the passage together, beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And if you found it, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's Word? Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've got some extras here at the end of each row. You can feel free to just take that home with you. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to have it. Um, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. This is the word of the Lord. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there is 
know Christ without the cross and the resurrection. Verse 31, chapter 8, introduces the major shift in Mark's story. Jesus says, Mark tells us rather, that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, must be killed, and then three days later must rise again. Nothing symbolizes the importance of this shift quite so well as the simple line at the beginning of verse 32. He said this plainly. One of the remarkable things we've seen throughout Mark is how when Jesus does something amazing, he usually tells the people who were there not to tell anybody about it. He wanted to keep a cap on how much was known about him and, and who knew about him. And though Mark never really spells this out, our best guess as to why is that he didn't want them misunderstanding who he was and why he had come. He didn't want them thinking he was just some holy man who goes around doing amazing things. He wanted to be able to define what the Christ looks like and what the Christ was here to do. The first time that we see Jesus speaking plainly, he speaks plainly about his death and resurrection. That's who the Christ is supposed to be. He knew that the unfolding story, what what this story so far has made plain again and again, that there are many wrong ways to respond to what Jesus was doing. And Jesus wanted the right message about his identity, about what kind of Messiah he was, communicated clearly. Now, every detail in this summary that Mark gives us, it would be shocking at the time. Nowhere in the Old Testament or in any of the holy books that that Jewish rabbis had written to interpret the Old Testament had the Messiah been associated with suffering. They were not expecting a Christ to come in and and suffer at all, much less be killed. They were expecting a Christ who would come in riding a triumphant horse and and, and ridding the Holy Land of all the oppressive Roman uh, regime. That's what they expected. That's the kind of Christ they were looking for. Nowhere were they told to expect the Messiah to come and suffer. Just as shocking would be the ones out of whose hands he was claiming he would suffer. Now, we have been reading the Gospels, a lot. many of us, from the days we were kids. And so when we hear things like scribes and chief priests and, and elders, we think those are the bad guys. We know that those are the guys in the black hats in this story, right? And Jesus is the guy in the white hat. Back then, that would not have been the case. Then, these were the categories of people who were at the top of the food chain in Jewish society. They were the most respected of, of community leaders. The fact that they would reject Jesus would have been shocking to those whom Jesus communicated this message. Then he says that he's got to die and rise again. This was not something they had categories to understand. The whole message would have been shocking. Mark gives us little here by way of any kind of detail of how Jesus explained it. He doesn't tell us why Jesus... He doesn't tell us... That Jesus said anything about why he must die, simply that he, that he would die. Later on, he's going to give us more. He's going to tell us things like the Son of Man came to die and give his life as a ransom for many. And, and Paul will later on pick up this theme and explain to us in his letters why Jesus had to die. But still, Mark's summary, even though it doesn't get into those nitty-gritty details, it's, it's revealing. Mark tells us, he puts Jesus' language very specifically, that he must suffer these things. In other words, the purpose of God in His coming required this suffering, and nothing could change that fact. 
These things that the, the elders and the chief priests wanted to do to Jesus, their, their conspiracy to bring him to, to death, these things don't happen to Jesus. Jesus goes, he in fact came into the world for those things to happen. This statement places his death and resurrection at the center of his purpose as Messiah. It's the means by which he carries out the Messiah's task of, deliver, of deliverance and liberation. He didn't die, in other words, as a product of his coming. It wasn't a byproduct of his being here. It was the purpose of his being here. Yes, the Messiah came to deliver. That's what all the prophecies had promised. But it wasn't a bloody sort of coup in deliverance. It wasn't an, an uprising that threw off the Roman powers. It was a deliverance that happens by his own death. That's why he came. Jesus isn't merely a moral teacher. It's not that he supplies an, an example for us to follow. Jesus does something on our behalf that only he could do. And if this passage is our guide... No understanding of Jesus is complete without these two crucial components, his death and his resurrection. He's got to die as a ransom, a sacrifice on behalf of those of us who are too sinful to, to approach God in any other way. He has to, to do that once and for all, and he has to rise again in victory over death. That's once and for all, a symbol of the fact that we too will one day Rise because his sacrifice has done what it intended to do. He is our pledge of future resurrection, and that's why Jesus came. Just how shocking this news was, that this is the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be, just how shocking that was is, is plain in the way that Peter responds. Peter calls Jesus over to the side and rebukes him. He doesn't give us the exact words. We can get those elsewhere. But he, he calls him aside and, and wants to set him straight. And we can kind of understand why Peter would have gone there. I mean, remember, he's a new convert, basically. He's got all the zeal of someone who's newly convinced that Jesus is who, who he says he is. He's the Christ. Peter had been doubting him, wondering where he was going to get bread when he was on a boat trip with Jesus. Now he's just declared him as the Christ. He's made his confession of Jesus as Savior known. And he wants everyone to know it. He'd been following Jesus for a while. He knew there was something remarkable about him. He wasn't quite sure who he was until now, by the illumination of God, he's recognized that this is not just another prophet or miracle worker. This is the Christ. But he's convinced, at least in part, what was generally expected about Messiah, what he'd seen Jesus do. He's convinced that Jesus is going to use his power to oust these Roman oppressors, to establish his kingdom over Israel in its place. And he wants everybody to know, once and for all, that that's what Jesus is here for. And now he's hearing Jesus talk about suffering. Talk about death and rejection, shame. He can't handle it. He doesn't have categories for this kind of Messiah. Jesus' response to Peter is just as telling. Peter shows they weren't ready for this kind of Jesus. Jesus' response to Peter is as dramatic as it could be. He identifies in Peter Satan himself and tells him to get behind him. And the key, the key to Peter's misunderstanding, according to Jesus, is that his mind is set on the things of man, not the things of God. That fundamental insight explains how and why it is that we have such trouble accepting the kind of Jesus that's explained to us here. 
if we were building a salvation system from scratch, there's no way that we conceive of a Christ who suffers and dies and seems utterly defeated any more than we'd pick a small shepherd boy to be Israel's greatest king, as God did with David, any more than we would pick an old, childless, landless idol worshiper like Abraham to be the one through whom this people is established for all generations. This is not who we'd pick. This is not how we would have chosen to do it. That's the things of man. For Peter, this Messiah seemed crazy because it wasn't consistent with the image of power that defined his understanding of what Christ would look like. For us, the death of Christ seems crazy for other reasons. We might ask, like, how is it that one person can pay for the crimes of somebody else? Isn't that unjust that Jesus would die? What kind of, what kind of legal system is that? And why, we might ask, doesn't, doesn't God, if he's loving, just look past sin and forgive without demanding this sort of satisfaction? Why does he require death? This is not how we would have done it. Part of the answer to our questions lies in the nature of forgiveness itself, even among humans. Anytime you forgive someone, you have to absorb the cost. It always means not demanding from somebody else what they owe to you. If you forgive your child for breaking something valuable in your home, what you're agreeing is to pay the cost for their mistake. You lose out on the TV or whatever it was that was broken so that you can forgive them. That cost is eaten by you, not by them. That's forgiveness. If someone has wronged you and you agree to forgive them, you're agreeing not to insist on the ostracism that maybe is, is warranted by their actions against you. You absorb the cost that their hurt has, has imposed on you and you do it in forgiving them. Uh, that, that's, that's the essence of what forgiveness is. Christianity teaches that Christ is God himself. Christ is God made flesh. And to forgive the sins of humanity, he had to bear the cost himself. He had to absorb what he could have demanded from others and, 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 and take it on himself. That's the way forgiveness always works, even in our own experience, which mirrors what's going on on the cross. But there's another layer, too. There's another layer. Sin, ultimately, must be punished for justice to have any meaning at all. We're familiar with, and, and we even demand justice every day of our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, probably we do that a lot more than we realize. Somebody steals your car, you want them caught and prosecuted. It's as simple as that. Bernie Madoff has been back in the news lately. We read about Bernie Madoff ripping people off, taking their ignorance against them and stealing away from their futures, and we want him caught and prosecuted. Our sense of justice and fairness is violated by what we heard he's done. Think of the genocide that's in Darfur, and we want those perpetrators caught and to pay for their crimes. You watch an old grainy documentary about Nazi war criminals, we want those guys caught and punished. And if our sense of justice that's so valuable to us if, if our sense of, of what's right and what's, what's fair is to have any meaning at all, if that sense of justice that comes so basic is true in any sense, if it's anything other than the values of our little culture in this time and place, if it's transcendent and universal like we feel it is, it's only because there's a God of justice who created the world with this system built into it, built into its very fiber and held up by him 
and his own commitment to justice. And if that God exists, if he is going to sustain the just order of the world, then he's ultimately got to ensure that just punishment of every wrong happens in every case, even when we don't see it. It would mean that every injustice, even the little ones against us in, in just our normal day, is ultimately an, an injustice and an offense against God, the one who upholds those standards of justice. That's what it would have to mean. And him, his commitment to punishing wrong would be a matter of character. He wouldn't be who he was without punishment of sin any more than a normal judge that we have in our own society would be a, a worthy and, and, and moral upstanding judge if he just let things go. Now here's the beauty of the cross. Here's why the, cro- the, the Christ is only the Christ with, in light of his cross and resurrection. The cross represents God's wise plan for faithfully upholding this justice that we require if our lives are to make any sense at all while also showing his unmatched love. On the cross, he bears the cost that justice requires so that in love he can pardon those who'd actually committed the wrongs. He identifies with us in our weakness. He becomes as if it was him who had sinned. Paul tells us he becomes sin. so that it's possible for us to live as those who are pleasing to God. John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, maybe some of you guys have read it. It's one of the best explanations of how all this works, and and it centers on the concept of substitution. This is what Stott wrote. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. There's that kind of substitution. We claim to be God, act as if we are, violate his standards, and put our own in its place. We substitute ourselves for God. That's sin. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God put himself where we deserve to be. This explanation isn't going to win everybody over. The cross of Christ is going to remain scandalous as it has been since the beginning in the minds of many people. At the very least, what we come away with in this summary that Mark has given us of Jesus' own teaching about his identity is that we are not being faithful to the Jesus that the Bible presents us with if we define him in any way that doesn't include the centrality of his death. The bottom line is that according to this passage, you don't get Jesus apart from his fundamental purpose to die as a ransom for many and to rise again as a pledge for our future hope. That's the Jesus that Mark gives us. That's the Christ, and there's no Christ without this cross. That's point one. Jesus' summary of who he is and what he came to do. There is no Christ without the cross. Mark also tells us, though, about Jesus' new and radical teaching on the nature of discipleship. What we learn from the second half of this passage, of his exchange with Peter and those others who were around, is that there's no discipleship without suffering. It makes sense to us that, I think logically, that that. It would, that following Jesus would mean reflecting something about what Jesus came here to do. That Jesus' purpose somehow also sets our purpose as followers of Jesus in this life. That following Jesus to require suffering, though, was just as radically unexpected by his followers, his disciples, as a Jesus who would have to suffer. 
Of course, only Jesus could be the one who could die as a fitting substitute. We're not saying that disciples do everything Jesus did. But the principle of sacrifice, the principle of laying aside one's own interests for the sake of others, being rejected by the powers that be because you're affiliated with Jesus, that was to be part and parcel of Christian discipleship. And that's the subject that Jesus takes up in verse 34. We're told he, just after he's rebuked Peter, he calls the whole crowd around him. He's like, look, okay, you don't get the point about my coming. You're going to have to learn that through experience. But let me go ahead and set the record straight. I'm not the only one who has to suffer. And if you're expecting anything other than self-denial and suffering, you've signed up for something under false pretenses. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Especially in light of some of the stories that we're going to get to in the next couple weeks, it's not hard to imagine what the disciples were expecting to get out of their relationship with Jesus especially as they grew more and more convinced that he was the Christ. Remember, they had an image of what the Christ was going to be. The Christ was going to be powerful, establish a kingdom. Jesus himself was using language like kingdom. And they thought that that would look like here, now, in this place, obvious to everyone, unmatched in power. They'd seen Jesus do amazing miracles. They'd even been empowered by him themselves to go out and do likewise. Remember those stories where Jesus sends them out to cast out demons because it was too, the job was too big for him alone? They'd even seen themselves in power. The Christ, they hoped, was on the cusp of bringing in a new and unassailable kingdom of God on earth. A reign of power that no one could break. And surely, back of their minds, they were thinking that the 12 people who were most close to him, these would be the ones who would make up his administration. Just like President Obama hires his basketball buddies to be his, his top advisors. You know, the guys who have been with you all along, end up the guys running the show with you, and they make up your administration. That's what, the, that's what the disciples were surely thinking was going to happen for them. When Jesus reigns as undisputed king, we'll be right beside him. Later stories are going to show this is exactly what they're thinking. They are fighting with each other even over who's going to get to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. Who's going to get the throne next to Jesus' throne? They believe in Jesus now to an extent. They even trust him to provide something they can't provide for themselves. But their impression of what he's going to give them is still colored by their desire for self-advancement. To get ahead in this life, to be recognized as one with a powerful and, 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 and worthy reputation. They want power, they want prestige, maybe they hope to get rich. But what Jesus promises them is a cross. Jesus uses the cross here for discipleship before he's even used it for his own life and death. He said he's going to suffer and be killed. He hasn't introduced the cross yet. He introduces the cross as an image for them following after him. And at this point in history, the cross was not the sacred and beautiful image that it's, that it's viewed as today. There were no fancy stained glass windows or beautiful art or jewelry that, that captured the image of the cross. It was the most shameful and barbaric form of death imaginable. And, the, and Jesus' language, calling people to take up their cross and follow him, the image that evokes is that death march where the condemned person is forced to carry their own cross, their own instrument of destruction for themselves down these crowded streets while they're spit on and things are thrown at them. That's the image of discipleship that Jesus is calling up when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Self-denial that Jesus calls for. 
is this kind of self-denial, an absolute emptying of one's interests, of one's entire life for the sake of following Jesus. The next sentences, verse 35 and, and, and following, they're paradoxical almost. Explain why this kind of self-denial is ultimately worth it. Ultimately, this kind of self-denial, a giving away of your life, is what secures a life that matters far more, a life that's eternal, that's lived in the presence of the Father, a life of joy and peace and ultimately rest. That's what giving away the life, your life here will secure for you in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. Jesus says whoever would save his life, ironically, is actually going to end up losing it. You try to build your life up here, your own little kingdom here, of reputation, of wealth, of prestige, whatever, you're going to end up losing it. The irony is that the one who spends time building that kind of kingdom here on earth, building wealth, reputation, power, influence, has that person has no room for resting on Jesus and loses his life at a much deeper and even eternal level. Jesus continues, verse 36 and 37, to show that there's no amount of wealth or power or anything else that can buy one's soul. The reason that giving up your life here secures it later, whereas insisting on a good life here is going to cost you your life later, is that there is nothing here in this life that's worth the value of the human soul. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What if you got everything you wanted? The world was yours, but you, gave, you had to give up your soul to get it. That would be a bad deal for you because, verse 37 says, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing. The idea that, there's, that, that the soul is somehow equal in value to anything in this world is, is like assuming that you could buy an actual house on Broadway with Monopoly money. It's two different levels altogether. It is a different sphere. The value of the soul is in an entirely different sector from anything that you could amass for yourself in this life. That's his argument. What could you, you gain the whole world? You think you can buy your soul with that? Jesus' call to discipleship here doesn't come with a promise of a better life, free from pain or sickness. doesn't promise to expand your territory to give you more success at work or a larger bank account in response to your faithfulness. He's not promising you that. Quite the opposite. What Jesus is calling you to is an emptying of yourself. He's calling you to live for Him and through Him for others. What He promises is that self-denial in this life as an expression of absolute faith in Him, of a rest in the fact that He's worth having nothing here because He is everything that matters in the kingdom to come. That kind of faith will result in an eternal life of joy and beauty. It's a promise that his own resurrection has accomplished for us an inheritance that moth and rust can't destroy. That's the implication of verse 38, I think. There's a warning there. If you're ashamed of me now, I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come in judgment, and that is not going to be a pretty sight. The implication is, if you own me now, no matter what it costs you in terms of reputation or even your own life, I will own you at the day when I come to establish my kingdom and power. So, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the way of the cross? The stories that Mark is going to tell us from here on out, the rest of our time together in Mark for the next few months are going to help flesh that out. 
But for now, here's a few examples. For some, this image of of a cross-centered life, of taking up the cross to follow Jesus, is not far from literal. Following Jesus has cost many people their lives. That's probably not far from why Mark would even include this in his story. By the time he was writing this, Christians would have been persecuted widely in the Roman Empire. People were dying left and right because they were confessing the name of Jesus. Taking up the cross meant exactly that for them. And there are places in the world even today where that's still true. Parts of, of, of China, parts of India, parts of Africa, throughout Central Asia and the Middle East, people are dying because they claim Jesus' name. That's a sacrifice that's not likely to be asked of any of us in this room, but I know there are some of you who who will or even have already experienced persecution because of of your profession of faith in Christ. I know, for example, that some of you have struggled with ostracism from your families because of your serious commitment to Christ. They don't understand it. They they can't get comfortable with it. And it it harms, if not destroys, your relationship with Him. That's a kind of suffering for directly for claiming the name of Christ. And you, if you haven't already experienced it, may be called to experience that at some point. For most of us, the call of the cross is going to be less glorious, though, than than the call of the martyrs. We're not going to be written about as somebody who made the good confession and was burned at the stake for it. As Chesterton wrote, I read somewhere this week, he wrote, a man who has faith must be prepared not only to be a martyr, but to be a fool. For more of us in this room, that's going to be the cross that we bear. In every generation, there have always been tenets of Christian faith and and moral practice that have seemed foolish, have seemed outdated, or maybe even worse. Some of you, especially those of you who are in a university environment or working in a highly highly secular context, you may be required to sacrifice the respect of your peers because of your confession of Christ because of your commitment to the truthfulness of the Bible or your unwillingness to indulge your flesh in fashionable ways. The question for you is, are you willing to be regarded as foolish for the sake of Christ? Because those who have claimed his name have always been regarded as foolish by some people for some reason. It's going to happen to you. For all of us, this kind of self-denial Jesus is calling for is going to look like a daily battle with sin. The kind of suffering that comes from denying your bodies and your minds the things that they want. There are always going to be things that would give us fleeting pleasure in this life that compete with Jesus for rule over our hearts and lives. I'm not going to enumerate what those could be. You've probably got your own set. I've got mine. The daily battle with sin is a call to take up the cross of suffering that is not letting yourself have the things that you want in the moment. And perhaps the most basic and everyday call to take up our cross is the daily opportunities we're going to have to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of those around us. It's always going to be easier to be served than it is to serve. Even more, it will always seem best to us to insist on satisfaction from those who've done us wrong. There are people at your work, at your family, among your friends... I'll go out on a limb here and say that there are people even in this church who wronged you. Your first instinct is going to be defense. That's, where you, that's, where, that's going to be your knee-jerk reaction, is to insist on your rights, to make sure that they know that you know that they tried to pull that around on you. You're going to want to set the situation right by demanding that kind of satisfaction. And sometimes talking it out and showing other people where they're wrong is the right thing. That's not 
something I'm going to try to pick on. More often than not, though, the call of cross-centered discipleship for you is to let it go, to accept the cost to what's yours by right and model the grace of Christ where it can be most clearly seen. And that is in you sacrificing your interests, what you deserve, what's rightfully yours, for the sake of the one who's done you wrong. You taking one, even for the one who is imposing this wrong on you. That's what Jesus did. That's the call of the cross in Christian discipleship. That's the reason that one line in our membership covenant, one of the key provisions in the covenant that we make with each other when we, when we join this church officially in membership is we promise that we will extend to each other the grace shown to us in Christ Jesus, remaining slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. That is a kind of suffering. It's self-denial at its best, and it's the call to discipleship, to take up the cross and follow Jesus. The call of Jesus' cross is to a self-emptying. It could mean that you leave this world without fame. It could mean that you leave without a penny to your name. But the promise of Jesus' resurrection is that by this radical discipleship, by this way of living as an expression of radical trust, that Jesus is enough and that he's true to his word, your soul is ultimately going to be delivered. No matter how meager your existence in this life, your soul is going to be delivered. Jesus calls a call to live now and to live forever as if Jesus is radically satisfying, leaving you no need to supplement what he provides you with the things offered to you by the world. The question for you is, what are you willing to give up? Can you identify areas in your life now where you're living this cross-centered life? Is there something in your life now that you can say you have given up and sacrificed because you claim the name of Jesus? Has it affected your life? Has this identification affected your life in any meaningful, sacrificial way? If you think through that and you can't identify any area in which you've had to make sacrifices, I would challenge you to consider how authentic your current practice of your Christian faith actually is. Because Jesus' promise here is that you will have to self-deny. It's not that you should as you have opportunity. It's that you will if you're following him. That's what it means. That's its definition. Are you willing to squander opportunity for advancement in exchange for opportunity for service and ministry? Are you willing to join with Paul and consider all things in this world as nothing more than a heaping pile of dung compared to the value of knowing Christ? Are you willing, in other words, to suffer in this life for the sake of the hope that's set before you? That's the call. That's the call. Deny yourself now, take up your cross, and enjoy the fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection forever. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for not counting our sins against us, but through Jesus making full and complete satisfaction for what we owed to your just and perfect order. We confess our failure to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. So we ask you for the grace to joyfully embrace the image of a Christ who comes bearing a cross. 
We ask for the strength to uphold this good confession in spite of how it appears to others and in spite of what it might cost us by way of reputation. We pray for the grace and the strength to take up our own crosses and to follow behind Jesus in radical self-denial. We pray that the opportunities for that kind of self-denial would be plain before us. We pray that we would be convicted where we have failed to take up our cross. We ask for radical supernatural illumination to see things as they are and to embrace this call wholeheartedly. We ask for the kind of faith in Jesus that leaves him ultimately satisfying in our minds so that we can do without all the things offered to us here. That's what we pray for. That's what we know Jesus has called us to and ultimately what he came here to give to us. And so we pray in his name. Amen.